0: This episode of Inside Acting is brought to you in part by VODAGOGO, the award winning voiceover training system and winner of Backstage's Reader's Choice Award for Best VO Training Four Years in a Row. Visit slash Start for a free Getting Started in Voiceover online class that will help you add voiceover to your acting portfolio. That's slash Start.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 118 of Inside Acting. My name is Trevor Elgott, and on this podcast we interview actors and directors and writers and agents and managers and casting directors and personal fitness gurus and filmmakers and personal finance gurus and writers and I said writers already, you get the idea. We interview all these people and we stick it uh, in this podcast and put it out there on the internet every week for you to listen to and hopefully learn from. And we're just two dudes with a podcast, AJ and I. We don't uh, pretend to have all the answers. We definitely want this podcast to be a forum where everybody can kind of get together and discuss the stuff we're discussing. So if you hear something on the show that you disagree with or you've got uh, you know some things you want to chime in on or just share your journey, give us a call. Shoot us an email. Shoot us a tweet. Post on our Facebook group. There's a lot of different ways to get your voice in the show. And you can get started by going to, uh, InsideActingPodcast.com. On today's episode, we have part one of our chat with film, uh, filmmaker, activist filmmaker, actually, Dennis Henry Henley. And, um, really excited to bring you that. So make sure you guys stick around. Hey okay, guys, how's it going? Uh, this is Trev. As you can probably tell, I'm flying solo this week for a couple reasons. One, AJ um, had a really, really great run with Heathers. It closed this past weekend, and he was invited onto a secret set to do some secret awesome things, and so his week got packed really suddenly. So no better reason to miss uh, a podcast episode. So uh, it's kind of awesome that he's he's gone, gone off and done that, and uh, for my part... I, um, I've um i been really neck deep in these audiobooks I've been working on, uh, working on my Beachbody stuff, and I had a, a great, great audition for uh, that show Brooklyn Nine-Nine this past week. It just kind of came out of the blue, and it was like a perfect role for me. Like, it could not have been any more perfect, and I went into the room, and I I really, I thought I did a, a, a honest, good job with it, and I got some great feedback from the casting directors, and I thought shit, that's, that's got my name written all over it, you know, I was ready for the phone call, and, uh, phone call never came, so, um, I got to really practice, uh, acceptance this, this, uh, this week, I was super bummed, man, I, I really thought that was gonna pan out, and, um, it was a, the role was a, a, a swimmer turned serial killer, and given that I am a swimmer, and I seem to get cast as the bad guy a lot, I thought, sweet, Anyway, um, so I've been chewing on that and letting it go and living with it and being okay and all that fun stuff. But, um, that's really, uh, that's really been our, our weeks. So we're going to have a lot of time next week to catch up and, um, discuss some of the awesome, awesome emails and, uh, voicemails and things like that, that you guys have been sending into the podcast, uh, lots of cool news and things around the industry as well. So lots to talk about in episode 119. But for now, I'm just going to kind of cut this one off at the knees and uh, jump right into the interview with Dennis. So here is part one of our chat with actor, I'm sorry, I keep wanting to say actor, activist filmmaker, Dennis Henry Henley. Hope you guys dig this. Some really good stuff here. And uh, I'll see you on the other side. Hey everybody, this is Trev and AJ, and we are uh, out here in uh, like Glendale area. Uh, Los Feliz. Los Feliz area?
0: It's actually Atwater at Village. Water. Atwater, Atwater Village. Village. He's like, get it right. Look at his face. He's like, listen, <laughs> it's Atwater Village. It's well, the uh, It's the
2: filet of the neighborhood. Yeah.
1: All we know is that it's, like, to people on the west side, anything that's, like, over the hill is, like, might as well be another country. And it's the same thing with people over over the hill. Like, why would I go all the way out to the west side?
0: Yeah, we're in Egypt right now. Yeah. Uh,
1: So, anyway, we're sitting here with uh, Dennis Henry Henley. Uh, I feel like all three names just go together. Is that pretty much... It's a little
2: pretentious, but, yeah,
1: I I use them
2: all three. Cool, yeah. (laughs) And
1: and, uh, I met Dennis uh, because I had the uh, privilege of reading for a film that he wrote... I believe directed and produced uh, a few years ago called Bold Native, and uh, I I just went in and auditioned and um, just kind of got on. I rather he got on. How do I say this? I became a fan of his work just by checking out. Uh, I think at the time it was Open Road Films, and then I now it's morphed to a different name. I believe.
2: Yeah, we're called Gather Films now. Okay, cool. Yeah.
1: So now it's Gather Films, but uh, there's um, a there's a bigger, more
2: famous Open Road Films in existence.
1: Is oh okay.
2: As uh, you may know if you go to AMC Theatres, they, uh, they're a co-production of AMC and Regal Theatres, Open Road Films. They released The Grey, The Host, uh, right. a number of films. So.
1: Okay, so at some point that came along down and you were like, okay. Yeah, we changed. <laughs> Gather sounds cooler anyway. Um, <laughs> and uh, anyway, I, I became a fan of his work and I've just kind of been following him and uh, saw, saw him on Facebook a couple Weeks ago, and thought, God, you know, you'd be a great guest. Why didn't I think of this earlier? So we're really pleased to have you on the show. Thanks for taking the time.
2: Well, thanks for coming sure. out. You know, it's uh, you did audition and you did callbacks, and I remember we, the auditions for that film were really fun because we got to do a lot of like improv and play, and like you know, we we're really looking for like dynamics between people. So. saw a lot of your work, and you were really good, so it was cool to hear from you again.
1: Cool, thanks. Well, it's awesome to be back in touch with you, and I'm really excited to sit down with you for a number of reasons, not the least of which is, well, actually, the two things I'm excited to chat about are, number one, the scope of experience you've had in the industry. You've written, you've directed, and you've certainly had your fair share of producing. You've got a lot of production credits on your IMDB profile, and I know you've probably done even more than that, So, so we've got that to chat about. And then also, um, I'd like to talk about, um, I guess, what you termed as activist filmmaking. Um, we talked about that a little bit before we started recording, that um, a, lot, a lot of the listeners know that I'm pretty uh, health-conscious kind of guy, and um, it was the audition for that film that really got me thinking about food and where it comes from and what the effects of my diet are, not only on my body, but on the environment and the places that it comes from. And so I'd love to chat about what it's like to take something you really believe in and make a narrative out of it and then self-produce that. So uh, let's get started with uh, where you started. Did you grow up in L.A.?
2: No, I grew up in Indiana, um, and I decided that I wanted to make films in high school. I, uh, up to that point, had wanted to be an astronaut, and then um, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw Twin Peaks, And then I just started watching David Lynch movie after David Lynch movie. And I actually had no interest in films until that point. And, like, it blew my mind. And then I just hopped from director to director, movie to movie. And by the time I was out of high school, like, I knew I wanted to make films. Coming from Indiana, I didn't know anything about how to do it. And it was, like... It wasn't, like, now where you can kind of just get on YouTube and, like, there's so much information. This was, like, pre-internet era, and it was... Pre-iPhone
0: um, in your pocket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, and I knew I wanted to make films, so I didn't have any idea how to do it. And so, um... And I... You know, I wanted to go to college, uh, but I wasn't sure on what. And I didn't want to go to film school because at that point I was like, what am I going to learn from film school? I would later realize that you basically get connections and meet people and like that's more than more than learning how to make films. You like get the opportunity to be around people who want to do what you want to do. Um, but I just went to um, Indiana University for anthropology, graduated really quickly and then came out to Los Angeles with a friend of mine and just started trying to get work. And
1: um, um, You went to Indiana University for anthropology? Yeah,
2: I studied anthropology. Wow. I I wanted to study something that would be somewhat, I thought would be useful in terms of writing and making films. And I was like, I started with comparative literature. And my first class, it was such bullshit. I was just like, the professor was very certain about what the the book said. And I was kind of like, I don't think it says that. He's like, no, that's what it says. And I was like, well, if I'm going to be around people who think they're right, I'm going to be in some sort of science field, you know? Like, I'm not going to be in an art field if if this is all about being right. Um, And so I chose anthropology. Uh, If I had to do over again, the thing I always say to our interns when we have interns is to, like, quit college and just go to work. Like, Mm. I would not go to college again. We've heard that repeatedly on the show. Yeah, it was a waste of time. Mm. Like, I wish I had just come out and started working. I would have been three years ahead. Um, but I came out, and in my mind, not knowing much, I'd read—you know—I'd read books about the industry or stuff. But mostly, I'd read like stuff like Robert Rodriguez's book, um, Rebel Without a Crew, Rebel Without a Crew, yeah. and things like that. That were more about like micro-budget indie filmmaking, and um, I didn't really understand the, st- the social military structure of film sets. So I thought, okay, I want to be a director. Assistant directing is what I should do. And so that's what I, I try to get into assistant directing departments. Of course, that's the worst place to be if you're a director because mm-hmm. that's basically like the thought of as the least creative position on set often. Um, and also, it's like you really are spend a lot of time like sitting at trucks. Obviously, <laughs> um, yeah. I was going to
0: say what what causes that uh, position? Is it because there's a lot of like just being on the walkie and corralling extras and that kind of thing
2: yeah it's basically yeah you're you're basically running you're you know you're you're the military like a film set is a military endeavor i mean in 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 the sense that you have people with very defined roles and like you're going into a new space and you're taking over and you're doing something and you're getting it done and getting out of there and you know um everybody has to follow their role and the ad department makes sure that the roles get followed and that communication is happening between departments and and that sort of thing. So it's good in that sense. You get to see, you know, you get the administrative aspect of a film set. Mm -hmm. Um so I worked in the AD department for a couple of films for free. Like I worked for free on a, a number of things. Uh couldn't get a job and got really like frustrated and went back to the Midwest, went to Chicago worked for free on something else, and then somebody that I worked for free for hired me as a production assistant in an office, in a production office. And so I spent the next couple of years bouncing back and forth between, like, Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles working in production offices, which is another horrible place to be if you are want to be a creative person, but it taught me a ton about producing. Um, I, uh, I worked my way up and so by the time I left that I was like my last job was um, production coordinator on the Scorpion King wow Um, so I was like I was doing like studio big studio movies and it was great it was interesting I learned a ton I got a lot of like you know every time a production would shut down I would get a ton of um office supplies and film supplies and stuff and i would go on unemployment for a few months and make a short film or do something like that Hmm. and so i was going back and forth um trying to like make short films while i was doing this other stuff um and then eventually i met my uh the person who became my business partner casey suhan and we started a small production company and we started producing short films for people um she had gone to film school. She had a network of people that, like, wanted to make short films. She had only done scrappy little things, you know, like, they had done, they would go out. And they. she worked at a camera shop. So she would get a camera, go out and make a movie. And I sort of brought, like, the organizational skills of, like, studio productions. And she brought the guerrilla skills of what she was doing. So together we were a great producing team. And all of her friends, anybody who wanted to make a short, we were like, yes, we'll produce it. So we produced, like, dozens of shorts over, like, a year or two period. And... You know at the end of that process um a knew how to make a movie cheaply b had a lot of relationships with people that would helped out that we could then call upon when we needed them and you know that was really the lesson for me that like the most important thing is like the relationships you make with people, no matter what level mm-hmm. of the industry you're at. People neglect that I think, and want to just move on and do whatever but like all the stuff that we did for free, all the stuff that we helped people with like The first documentary that her and I directed, because we we started producing documentaries at the same time, we directed a documentary called Rock the Bells, which was a behind-the-scenes look at the Rock the Bells music festival. Um, The first year it happened, and the promoter, who was this young, ambitious music promoter, This was, like, one of the bigger shows he was ever trying to do, and um, he was going to be, in addition to having six or seven other hip-hop acts, he was going to reunite the Wu-Tang Clan on stage for the first time in ten years, all members, including Mm. Cappadonna, who was the tenth member, Um, but this was right before ODB died, and so, um, you know, trying to get them all on stage, including ODB, at the same time, uh, was a huge task, and... We were able to call on all the people that we'd worked with, and we had, I think, like 17 cameras there the day of the show. Wow. And these were friends of ours, basically, who we'd work with, and they all came out and worked for like $100 a day because we had no money. This was all out of our own pocket. And it's a epic movie because, you know, we had cameras everywhere, and we were able to move them around, and it, it ended up being a great documentary, but we never would have been able to pull it off without, you know all the groundwork put in, in terms of, like, making relationships with people.
1: Yeah. So when you were working for free on all these projects, how were you paying the bills?
2: Well, that, that's... During that time period where we were producing stuff, shorts and things, for free, Okay. I would be doing studio jobs. So I would go and I would work for a few months, or anywhere from three to eight months, you know, in the production office, and then I would take, like, three to four to five months off and do this sort of stuff, and then go back... And that was about 3 years, the first 3 years of my time. Oh, okay. So when you
1: first came out, you said you were doing a lot of assistant directing work.
2: When I first came out, yeah, um it it wasn't I didn't meet Casey and start like producing shorts until after I was working on studio stuff in the production office. When I okay. first came out, I was working for free like I don't know. I I'd waited tables in Indiana and I had like a couple thousand dollars from that and I just lived off that and lived really cheaply i lived in a studio apartment with like five people and um uh-huh. it that was why it was frustrating that i couldn't get work you know like i would keep trying to get work and um wasn't able to and i didn't really have i wasn't going to go do some other job you know like i i knew what i wanted to do so i i knew i wanted to spend my time doing doing film in some way right um there is sort of a trap i think of like that meant that i took a lot of jobs like in production offices, which like I said, is kind of a soul deadening place, you know, <laughs> cause you do work like 18 hour days. Wow. You know? And it's yeah. like, you, you know, you get done with that. You don't, you're not going to go write something, you know, you're not going to work on something else. You can't do two things at the same time, working on a studio film and like doing something else. So, mm. you know, might've been better to not go to college and get a waiting job and, you know, write and whatever. But I do think that the main thing, no matter what is like, working on stuff, forming communities, working with people, helping them with their projects, getting people invested in you. And you do that by being invested in them, you know, and that's like, if you, if you're not doing that, I don't know how you can make it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One of the early lessons we learned on this show was that it's a relationship business and that it's people hire their friends and that's how your career is built. It has less to do. And we just talked about this on the episode we recorded today. Which is now several episodes prior to the one people are listening to now, but um, that it has a lot less to do with your talent and a lot more to do with your work ethic and what kind of person are you like to spend 18 hours a day with. You know, if it's going to be a pleasant, fun experience and you're going to be professional, I'd rather work with that guy any day over the guy who's super talented but a total diva. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um so that's really cool to hear that you were able to kind of leverage that later on a couple of years down the line.
2: I mean it's it it was it was uh it was a lot of learning experiences and um definitely not the most efficient way to go about things but I do think that like uh you're right you talent will only get you so far um and is certainly not the most important thing, you know, hard work, relationships, don't be an asshole.
0: Yeah, exactly, <laughs> don't be an asshole. Don't suck. Yeah. <laughs> Did you do any uh, filmmaking when you were in Indiana, or did you come out here first before attending anything out there?
2: There was one film production class at Indiana University called. Uh, it was a sixteen millimeter film production class, so I made a short film in that. And I'd made like video shit in high school, but
0: uh-huh. got was, it. That was. Something. I was just wondering, like, what advice you would have for people who were quote unquote getting started because we've asked that question to a lot of um uh, filmmakers who've uh, been on the on the show before and everybody's got like their different answers but you know we got uh, we got an email from a listener who just you know looked up the film commission in you know her minor market and just went to town like making doing whatever it took to get on set and work and 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 that kind of thing so you know, what kind of things were you trying when you were living in a studio apartment with five people, you know, trying to... Well, uh, that was also
2: pre-internet, which meant that, you know, you go down the Hollywood, you go down and buy the Hollywood Reporter off the newsstand every day and look in the back at productions that are going on and send their resume, fax, faxing your resume. Like, <laughs> What's um, that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how, you know, now I'm sure there's a much easier way to do it. Now there's things like mandy.com and, you know, you can... There's easier access, like independent filmmakers can talk to other people who want to go work on independent films. It was hard to do that prior, you know, at, at the point when I was trying to work on independent films because, like, you're not going to spend money, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, to advertise that you have a free job or a job that pays very little. Like, Mandy makes it possible, you know, to do that and say, hey, we need PAs. Great. Come PA on our movie. Um, my, my only advice would be to make films. I mean, especially now. If you're, if it's so easy, you can use your iPhone, you can use whatever. Like, yeah. make make a movie. If you want to make movies, you there's nothing stopping you from making movies, except your own fear and your own like feeling that like it might be bad. Guess mm-hmm. what? It's gonna fucking be bad. <laughs> I mean, and I you know what? that fear never goes away. Like, yeah. I don't care who you are. You can be the most famous screenwriter or director, whoever. Like. When you sit down with that blank piece of paper, you're afraid it's going to suck. And you say, you know what? That's fine. It's going to suck. And probably the first thing you write, no matter how good you are, it's going to suck. Mm. You know, It's like you have to get through some bad things. Um, and if you're a writer, you get the privilege of being able to throw that in the trash can. You know what I mean? And it, it just it didn't take a lot out of you. Uh, if you're a director or producer, it may be a little harder because you have to actually make the film. And it may take you a year. And you may finish it, and maybe it won't be good. You know what I mean. But the next yeah. one will be better. Um, you can't be precious about it, really. I don't think. I think you have to just try to make stuff. You know, I see a lot of. I've seen a lot of. Like, I'm old enough now that I've seen a lot of casualties along the road in Hollywood. Of mm. friends of mine who like that had just as much passion and talent and excitement, um, if not more talent than than me, who wanted to make films who aren't doing it. And it's like, just because they became too precious with their script or their idea, they worked on it and they worked on it and they worked on it. They wanted to get, you know, had to get right. And then they had to get $2 million and they had to this, you know what, put that, put that script on the shelf, write something you can shoot for 20 grand and go fucking shoot it. Like Mm. that, at this point, there's nothing stopping you from doing that. If what you want to do is make movies, you know what I mean? If what you want to do is have a commercial success and get your movie into theaters and, and these sort of things, then it's a different different piece of advice. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Your $20,000 movie probably is never going to be seen by anybody. It'll make you a better filmmaker, um, but it's not the way to achieve commercial success necessarily. That's right. a different conversation. Right?
1: So you really cut your teeth by doing all these short films, and then at, at a certain point you felt you were ready for something like Bold Made, which you had written and and directed and all that.
2: Oh, I was definitely, uh, I'm talking to myself as well with my my little tirade of advice there. Like, (sighs) we wrote the first draft of Bold Native in, like, 2001 before before September 11th. And um, we spent years rewriting it and rewriting it and trying to get an actor attached and trying to get financing for it. Now, while we were doing that, we were producing other people's shorts, and then we started producing documentaries, and then we started shooting documentaries. Yeah, you've shot a lot
1: of documentaries. Yeah, yeah,
2: like we've either produced or directed a, a number of documentaries. Most of them hip hop related. We worked for uh, QD Three, which is Quincy Jones's son, for awesome. a couple years doing like history of hip hop series, and um, I basically learned how to edit doing that, and learned how to shoot, and learned how to take stuff that had been shot for documentary and like cut it into a story like we were I was constantly doing stuff while we were trying to get bold native going, and then two thousand you know nine rolled around um, and we were like, "We are never going to get money for this script like it's not going to happen the, the 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 movie is about the animal liberation front it's about people who you know, go in to factory farms or uh, medical testing laboratories or places where animals are being exploited and abused and take them out and do property destruction to these places. And um, they've never hurt anybody, um, physically hurt anybody, um, but they're considered the number one domestic terrorist threat in this country, despite the fact that they've never hurt anybody. Obviously, they pose an economic threat to, you know, this underpinning system of animal exploitation that we have. Um, And uh, what they do is unquestionably illegal, but is it really terrorism? If nobody's getting hurt, the government thinks, yes, it's terrorism. And to, so to us, that was really interesting. And, you know, the script was very unapologetically about that subject. You know, it was um, – and we had people that liked it, but it was just never going to get anywhere without, like, some safety net attached to it, whether it be a star or a name director or something, which we didn't have. And so at 2009, we were like, you know what, we, the technology had progressed to such a place that like video was starting to look good. People shot stuff on video through the 2000s, but mm-hmm. most of it looked like crap. Um, the video was starting to look good, and we had learned so much in docs, we were like, well, what if we just do it ourselves, and we set up situations the way that you would, um, and then shoot it like a documentary. So we set up a situation have the people there and then just shoot it as if it's a documentary not document not like a mockumentary but basically just not get too precious about the camera work and shoot what we can and shoot mm-hmm. it loose and shoot it gorilla and have a sense of action to it people were also more used to that style because of you know a number of films sure um and uh we also decided to approach it like instead of trying to shoot it all at once we would shoot. We would like prep for a two-day shoot, so we'd spend like two or three weeks prepping for like a two-day shoot, and we'd go out and we'd shoot those two days, and we'd, we'd treat it as a series of short films, basically. Mm. And so like. It's like, okay, well, we can't do this all at once. We can't do, like, a four-week shoot with our 20 grand that we had, basically. This is a very ambitious movie. I don't know how much you remember the script, but there's, like, 60 characters. It takes place in
1: various states. It's, like, a huge, epic kind of film. And you got a lot of animals involved. I mean, I I remember specifically the the scene, and I don't know if it made it into the final cut, but there was a scene where there was uh, some sort of executive for one of these operations, and he was basically tortured. But I remember being a very... Uh, emotional epic scene I, that was the point of us just like wow like they're this is this is this is going to require a, a significant budget yeah,
2: yeah well what it there's that there's that old adage you know time money quality pick two and what we knew we didn't <laughs> mm-hmm. have was money so we the gave ourselves time or whatever yeah so called? we were yeah. basically like yeah. all right we're gonna spend so prepping for that stuff like we split that into two things like the the torture chamber and the exteriors and the house where the place supposedly was which we shot up in Big Bear and so we we, prep, we took three weeks to prep for that two day shoot in Big Bear went up and did it then we took another four weeks to prep for like the two day shoot at like a garage where we built the the thing you know so like it took us nine months and we had to take jobs in between in order to make money to finance the thing but um we got it done you know and, and spent the next year cutting it but basically like that that wouldn't have been possible without the uh, that wouldn't have been po- possible without the what we'd learn from the documentaries you know what I mean like it uh, it informed the way that we approached it and it um, it let us know that we could do something with no money mm-hmm. you know and that what it really took was like perseverance and like trying to trying to set up situations that we could then just capture you know
1: so That's a really great way to look at it. Rather than shoot something, set up a situation that you can capture. <laughs> but for, like, guerrilla filmmaking, like, that's brilliant.
2: Yeah, we shot in places that were open. You know, yeah. we would, like, we, we would go and, like, you know, go into a cafe and just shoot in a cafe like we were a doc, basically.
1: Uh-huh.
2: You know, people have, we're not the first to do this. We're not the last. People are doing this. I think that we were a little bit unique in that we spread it out over a time period. I wouldn't suggest doing that. It sucked. Unless you want to do something that's bigger than what you can accomplish in like a three-week period. Like there was Uh no way to do this script for the amount of money we had in three weeks. Impossible. With a four-person crew. We didn't have an art department. We didn't have anything. It was like me, my camera person, uh, cinematographer, um, and two producers. Mm -hmm. So four people Mm -hmm. did everything, including sound. Wow. So like it was like a doc style crew. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we didn't... That that was the main thing that was documentary style about it. It was uh-huh. the
1: way you would approach shooting a doc. Is it available on Netflix or anything, or where can I see it? Uh,
2: it is... Bold Native is on iTunes. If you want to buy it on iTunes, uh-huh. you can also watch it for free at BoldNative.com. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. And you can buy the DVD there. The DVD has, like, two hours of special features and a whole bunch of other stuff. So we decided at a certain point to make it available for free to watch in HD online and... Um, we still, you know, we still sell DVDs. People watch it and they want to maybe hand it to somebody or have it in their collection or see the special features. And uh-huh. we're not making a ton of money, but it does still continue to sell every once in a while and people watch it, right? Which is always our main goal. Um, we've had a hell of a time getting it on iTunes.
0: Not really? iTunes. No, actually, iTunes
2: was easy on Netflix. Yeah, like we worked with a. Um, uh, I don't know how much you guys know about like the digital distribution space. I found
1: one company for like a 1300 bucks or something. They push it out. I think that was the one. Yeah. yeah so
2: distributors who we used and they're very good and they're very honest. Like we still get statements from <clears throat> them, even if it's 20 bucks, like they send us our money, which is, is rare and distributors whole business model. And it's a really good one. At least this is what it was when we did it. I don't know if they're exactly the same, but basically like you pay them to get it onto iTunes or to Netflix or whatever. And you just pay a flat fee. It's some amount between 1000 thousand and two thousand, and 2000 And they take that flat fee, and then you get all the money from iTunes. Oh, okay. And that's a 70-30 split, I think, iTunes. From iTunes yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, they don't keep any part of that. Um, and uh, the thing with Netflix is that they can present it to Netflix, and Netflix put it into their system, meaning if you search Bold Native on there, it'll show up. And you can rate it, and you can put it into your queue, but it's not actually there yet. Like, to get it in, to actually get it onto Netflix, they've rejected it now a number of times. Like, they'll be like, no, well, we don't, we're not going to take it. And they don't give any reason why. You don't actually get to communicate directly with Netflix. Oh, that's so frustrating. We talked to distributor, and is like, well, we sent it to them with our package of stuff that we sent this week. We send them the 20 films that we've been asked to send, and they pick the ones they want. And they can either just buy the DVDs and make it part of their DVD system. And the way Netflix works with DVDs is terrible for independent filmmakers. They buy 30 at 10 bucks each or whatever, and then they send
1: them out however many times they want. Uh-huh. Um, so but the filmmaker's not getting paid at all on the amount of views.
2: Not for DVDs. now. For, uh-huh. and, and you don't get paid on the amount of views for streaming either. They pay a yearly license fee. So you'll get some flat amount that lets them stream it for a year, and the distributor guys like when I talked to them about this, they said that you know that can be a thousand bucks. I think the best title they had had at that time was like twenty thousand dollars for a year, and that was like a music concert documentary of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a couple years ago. I'm sure they've, they've continued to do business. They've probably got titles that have made more. So you know, distributor was able to get Bold Native into the netflix system but actually getting the film onto netflix will only happen when they want it Hmm. and who knows why they want something i mean it's you can't make a case for it Uh there's no opportunity to make a case because they don't deal with independent filmmakers directly they only deal with aggregators like distribber um so we tried for like six months or something to get it on there and finally we were like it's not going to happen now maybe it will at some point um but so that's what uh compelled us to put it online for free for people to watch mm-hmm. we're like we're gonna put it at boldnative.com people can go watch it there um if we ever get it on netflix maybe we'll take it off of there if they ask us to in order to get it on i don't know mm-hmm. it would obviously be great on netflix because that's where people find things that they aren't looking for yeah you know yeah. what i mean um
1: so and there are other other um I guess venues or or things that have popped up for independent filmmakers to, or I'm sorry, for people to discover independent films, but they're you know they don't have the same reach as Netflix and things like that. So it's kind of a tough yeah situation. I think putting it online for free and just having as many people as possible view it is really the only only real way to, to we go had, about it at this point.
2: Somebody else put it on YouTube. Uh, they uploaded the film to YouTube. The whole
1: film, the yeah, full?
2: the whole film and by the time I'd found it I think like 8000 people or so had watched it and I was like well I was like just take the advertising off don't they they it was somebody who puts up a lot of like films related to animal rights and mm-hmm. so I was like okay they put it up because they care about the issue they're not trying to make money off of it just don't make money off of it that's fine and put something there that says if you want to watch it in HD you can go to boldnative.com okay so they put that up and I was like because I didn't know at that point how to put up a full movie on YouTube. This was kind of when people started to do that. Mm-hmm. It's been up there for a little while, and it's got it just got a hundred thousand views on YouTube. Wow. So, okay. we also sell T-shirts and things like that to help with the cost of the film. We haven't made our money back yet. Mm-hmm. We never expected to make our money back, but we haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, it ended up, you know, being a little bit more than the twenty grand we spent on shooting it because we had post production costs and things like that. It definitely has it has gotten out there and it continues to live on. People continue to find the film.
1: And welcome back. This is Trev again by myself talking into a microphone. I'm in I'm in my car actually right now, guys. This is my sound booth for my audiobook work. I take my laptop. And a microphone called the, uh, AT 2020 Plus. It's the Audio Technica 2020. And it's an awesome mic for, uh, voiceover stuff at home for audiobook work and, and clearly podcast work as well. He said modestly. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, good stuff from, from Dennis there. And, and, um, I, I think I mentioned this in the second part of our interview, but, uh, I really love that he takes his role as a storyteller. And I feel like that word storyteller gets batted around a lot in this in this industry. A lot of people kind of, I don't know, I feel like it has a hoity-toity kind of connotation when people are like, I'm a storyteller. I tell stories. Come listen to my stories. I don't know. I, I don't know why I have an issue with it. But um, I, Dennis really takes his, his role as somebody who is constantly creating culture through his work and through his art. He takes it seriously you know he recognizes the responsibility that that he has and the people that he's going to affect and how his world I'm sorry how his art is going to go out and affect the world and I I really admire that about him and um, uh, I really have learned a lot just kind of peripherally following his career on the internet since I, I read for um, Bold Native all those uh, years ago so I'm excited to bring you guys part two next week uh, pick of the week my pick of the week is a book a short booklet and i'm totally blanking right now and i hope to god i didn't pick this last week um but a short booklet called no i did pick that last week didn't i oh shit okay uh i gotta come up with something new on the spot here okay um instrumental break i will come up with a new pick hold on a second Uh, my pick of the week this week is the new Nine Inch Nails album. It's called Hesitation Marks. And I'm a big fan of, of, uh, of music in general, um, but also of, of musicians who um, not like buck the system, but who take uh, their art into their own hands. And what do I mean by that? I think I mean um, artists who have a very clear vision for what they want to express And they don't let a party of others with perhaps possibly questionable interests uh, infiltrate their art. Even though Nine Inch Nails actually signed with Columbia Records recently um, to put out this album. I just love Trent's process. There's a really awesome article in um, Spin Magazine. I'll see if I can find the link and put it on the website for you guys if, if you're interested in reading this kind of thing. But I'm always fascinated by interviews with creative artists of of any kind in any medium and this article is just so fascinating to get a glimpse into his world and how his mind works and how he sees the industry and it's just a little it's like a little dance with genius on the internet so i'll see if i can post that but yeah the album hesitation marks is really different it's it's much closer to the downward spiral for you nine inch nails fans out there um than than most of the previous albums so it's kind of a coming home of sorts and he actually talks about that in the interview. He even right down to the font that they used in the booklet for the song titles and lyrics and stuff. It's the same font from uh, all the uh, artwork for the downward spiral. So I've really been digging on the uh, on that album and I bought the deluxe edition where there's like a 45 minute commentary track where Trent talks about the the process and the writing of songs and even plays unfinished parts of songs that didn't make it onto the album. And also, like, previous versions of songs that did make it. It's it's just cool stuff. So if, if you're a fan of music in any way, shape, or form, I think you'd dig it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. Uh, no listener pick of the week this week. I don't have anything from AJ. But uh, we will be back in full force next week. So excited to bring you guys part two of Dennis's interview. And we've got some awesome, awesome guests lined up uh, for basically from now and through to the end of the holidays. So... Uh, make sure you guys are subscribed to the newsletter. Make sure that you're following us on Twitter, twitter.com slash inside acting. You can also follow us individually. Uh, I'm twitter.com slash Trevor Algott. AJ is twitter.com slash digital actor. You can find us on Facebook. We have both a like page as well as a private Facebook group that you can join to interact with other listeners and us and even some of our guests. And um, if you really dig this show... And you want to support it on a more tangible level rather than just kind of like communicating with us and following us and whatnot, um, if that's your thing. Uh, You can give us a rating on iTunes. We definitely appreciate the five-star ratings if you feel the podcast merits that. And we always like to ask that if you feel it doesn't, that you shoot us an email or, or give us a call and let us know what you wish we would fix or change. And then give us an opportunity to respond and do that. And then if we don't, then go ahead and leave us your crappy review. But if you um, if you do dig the show, uh, a nice five-star review on there would be awesome. Same thing goes for com. We've got a, a business page over there, and, and the ratings are, are great in helping new people discover the, uh, this, uh, I guess, resource that we've, we're kind of building together. Not AJ and I, but all of us, meaning all our listeners, the whole community. Really, I, I see this as a group effort and uh, very excited to pay it forward every week. So, yeah, you can do that. And then also, if you really, really love the podcast and you want to keep us going, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. You can find the Donate button on the right-hand side of our website where you can donate through PayPal. You can do a lump-sum donation of any amount that you choose. I don't think they cap it at anything, so feel free to get crazy, stupid, generous. Um, And uh, you can also do as little as one penny, and that actually would be cool. We would appreciate that. I mean, it might be a little weird, but, you know, I think the gesture would not be lost. Uh, and then, of course, you can also uh, sign up to become a patron, which will get you a, a photo and a blurb, as well as links to all your relevant sites on our website, on our patron page. And that can uh, be, um, I guess, done for uh, 3 5 or $10 a month. And we've got some cool things in store for our patrons. Some things that we think will make that monthly contribution even more worthwhile as if it wasn't enough to support us out of your own pocket and your own kindness. And I fucked that up. The kindness of your own heart. Um, you can now do it and and get some more rewards. There's incentives coming. So I'm going to stop now. Thanks guys for listening. Episode 118 of inside acting. I'm Trevor Algott for our, um, technical producer, Cesar Camino, our, um, What's she called? Our production coordinator, Jen Levin. Sorry, it's, it's kind of late. And uh, and our co-host, AJ Meyer. I'm Trevor Algott, and we will see you next week. This episode of Inside Acting has been brought to you in part by vo2gogo.com, the award-winning voiceover training system and winner of Backstage's Reader's Choice Award for Best VO Training 4 years in a row. Visit vo2gogo.com/start for a free Getting Started in Voiceover online class that will help you add voiceover to your acting portfolio. That's vo2gogo.com/start.